You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, 1 Peter 3 is where you need to be, so make sure you've got a Bible in hand and you are ready to go. We're switching up the service this week because we've got Discover Stonegate meeting right now, the third little session of that. And I want to try to spend the last few minutes this morning up there with them. And so uh, I think we've got 35 or so people that are coming through and kind of pushing their chips in to our church family. And so we're really excited about that. And so with that said, we are in 1 Peter um, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And I want to just, well, let, let me preface it with this. When I was in seminary and taking a preaching class, one, one of the points that our preaching professor made as he was trying to develop us in the art and craft of preaching was that illustrations need to make your point, like they need to clarify it, not complicate it, right? And so illustrations are meant to clarify points, not to complicate it. And when your illustrations complicate and confuse a point, rather than clarifying it, there's a real simple solution. It's called pick a different illustration. And so uh, Peter didn't, he, he didn't catch that seminary class. And so he, he is about to give in this passage one of the most widely disputed, confusing, and complicating illustrations that there is in the Bible. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background to this passage. Martin Luther, one of the sharpest minds in church history, he, he said this. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So if you, if you read this passage a minute ago with us and you had this thought of, I have no idea what Peter just said. You're in great company. In the majority, actually. Uh, Karen Jobes, who uh, wrote a commentary on 1 Peter, she said this. This passage in 1 Peter is, one, uh, is, one, is the one most debated and written about. From the earliest days of the church, it has been understood in very different ways. Even among today's interpreters, this passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. Um, one of the commentaries that I've used a lot through um, kind of studying through First Peter has been Wayne Grudem's. And he spends 20% of his 250-page commentary on First Peter. 20% of it is on these five verses, right? And so th- there's some complication to this. There's a little bit of confusing stuff in this. One, uh, w- one commentator tried to track down all the nuanced ways that people interpret this passage. And he found that there were 180 of them. So good luck. If, if you've got a 21-year-old that walks in your home group and says, I've got it figured out, go ahead and laugh at them, all right? Because they don't have it figured out. 180 of them. So I think we could all agree that there is a sense in which, um, although all the scripture is equally inspired, not all the scripture is equally clear. And even Peter, by happenstance, believes this. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he's commenting on Paul's writings. And he said, uh, commenting about Paul, he says, and, and listen, some of the stuff he writes is hard to understand. Peter, are you serious? I mean, why don't you, you could probably say that about yourself too, right? I mean, th- this passage is incredibly difficult to understand. So with that said, uh, let me take a step back and approach it from kind of a, a broad perspective and say this. Peter is not writing as a seminary professor to, to students in a seminary, kind of in a nice, comfortable classroom. That is not Peter's context. The context of 1 Peter is he is writing to a suffering group of Christians, to suffering saints. They they are in the midst of suffering intense persecution. They're they're in the midst of suffering marginalization and they're ostracized. They're they're in the middle of that sort of a thing going on. So that's the context. What, What you see overarching in the book of Peter, or the book of 1 Peter, is him writing into a persecuted people. Okay, that, that's First Peter context. But in this passage, 18 through 22, suffering also kind of forms the framework of this passage. Okay, so look in verse 18. You see the first word is for. And that's going to kind of clue you in to, to the verse preceding has something to do with this passage. So look back at verse 17. One verse before. 317 says this. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
So, so suffering comes kind of as the lead-in. And by the way, when you think of suffering, I think this might be a workable definition for you. Suffering is getting what you do not want or not getting what you want. So it's, it's getting what you don't want or not getting what you would really like to have. That, that's suffering. So, I mean, you think about that across this room, that comes in a, in a million different ways in here. And, and Peter is saying on the front end of this, that, that there is suffering going on. So, so suffering on the front end of this, and then look at the back end. Look at uh, chapter four, verse one. In chapter four, verse one, you see this. Since therefore, that points backwards to the passage that we're going to be in this morning. Since therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So when you think about this passage, 18 through 22, it is sandwiched by suffering. It forms kind of the framework around this passage. And so um, and this has been, God has used a couple of pastors to really help me in seeing some of this this week. But the primary point that Peter is trying to get at in this passage is he is trying to help people who are suffering. Front end their suffering, back end their suffering. And this passage, these five verses are spoken into a persecuted people trying to offer them hope, trying to offer them some encouragement, trying to offer them some comfort in the midst of what what is intense suffering. And by extension, he is doing that for you and I some 2,000 years later as we read it. Peter, in this passage, is offering those in the room who, who you find yourself in a really difficult season. He is offering hope. He's offering some encouragement. He's, he's offering comfort to, to you today. So, so let me read the passage and then we'll, we'll jump in here. <clears throat> First Peter chapter three. For Christ also suffered once for sin in verse 18. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That gets really confusing. Talk, talking about spirits in prison, all that. Verse 20 is even worse. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so so here's what I want to do today. I'm going to give you five things out of this passage that I think Peter is asking us to see and to remember as a help for those of us in the room who are going through suffering. Like right now, you're in the midst of suffering. And, And just to say this again, that's coming for all of us. We've got that down, right? That, that if you're not in the, the chair of suffering today, you will be at some point soon. It's just a matter of time before it's your family, before it's you, before it's your wife. It, it's just a matter of time before that happens to you. So, so we're all going to take a, a turn in that chair. And so for those who aren't in the chair this morning, may, may this be good prep work for you. May, may God start to stir, you, stir into you something and, and settle deeply into your soul something that will give you kind of this sustaining force in the midst of it. So five things in the midst of suffering that Peter is asking us to remember. Uh, let me give you the first one here. Verse 18. Remember that Jesus has suffered also. Remember that Jesus has suffered. Look, look at verse 18. For, first four words. For Christ also suffered. If you want to take something with you that's going to be a great help to you in the middle of your suffering, it is for you to know this, that Christ has also suffered. That that he's also suffered. That that he has been there. That he has walked those shoes. And if you think about 1 Peter, especially chapter 2, it is saturated with the suffering of Jesus saturated with it. And, and so in chapter two, you've got right off the get-go in, in like four, five, six, you've got Peter saying, okay, this Jesus, he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. See, that, that is the path that Jesus walked on. The pathway of Jesus is marked by first, suffering, rejection. Pathway of Jesus is marked secondly, part two, by honor, by being chosen, by being precious in the sight of God. This is the pathway of Jesus. These two parts. First, you've got honor. Or first, you've got humiliation. Second, you have honor. First, you have mistreatment. Second, you have triumph. First, you have rejection by men. Secondly, he, he is raised up. Like, look at verse 18 in chapter 3. First, it is Jesus suffered. Then you look at verse 22. Part 2 of God, or Jesus' pathway. Part 2 is verse 22. And, and then he was raised up and sits at the right hand of God. So do you see the pathway of Jesus? It is marked first by suffering. Second, by triumph. 
Okay, this is the way he walked. This is, this is who Jesus is. And here's what Peter is saying here. That this pathway of Jesus is to be the pattern of every one of his followers. Do you know that? If you're a Christian in here, this is what you signed up for, that path. First, humiliation. Second, honor. Do you know that's what you, that's what you have signed on the dotted line for if you're a Christian? Let me give you three or four illustrations of this. In John 15, this will be up on the screen for you. In John 15, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has also hated me before it hated you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Okay, a couple, let me just try to explain it this way. A couple of, uh, this has probably been two months ago now. I tried to use an illustration to point out one of the major misconceptions that many Bible Belt people have about Jesus and about Christianity in general. And so I use this imagery of a file cabinet. Like if you view your life as the drawer, kind of the file cabinet, and, and all these files are in it. So your parenting is in it. Your work is in it. Your recreation is in it. Your, all of these things are in it. Your marriage is in it. All these things kind of line. They're individual files in the drawer. How most people view Jesus is like this. He is one more file, kind of self-contained in the folder. He's one more file that I stick into the folder of my life kind of the drawer of my life. So he fits in there right beside everything else. He doesn't, he doesn't move over into those other files. He, he sits right beside one among many files in my life. He is one among many things that I'm a part of, that I do, that, that characterizes me. And listen, that is not Christianity. Do you know that? That is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus will not be one file among many in anyone's life. He won't do that. He'll never settle for that part in any person's life. See, when you become a Christian, this is what happens. The old file cabinet is thrown to the curb and a new file cabinet with the name of Jesus is written on it. And now every file in your life, parenting, finances, you just go down the list, jobs, every file that makes it up your life, every file now fits into that file cabinet with the name of Jesus on it. And now Jesus saturates and sits around and, and moves all through every one of those files. See, this is what it means to become a Christian, that Jesus actually becomes the thing that saturates, that dominates every part of you. See, Jesus is not out to be an accessory of your life. He's out to transform all of your life so that it's centered on him. So, so that means that we're yielding to Jesus. That means that we're dying to self. That means God is actually sanctifying us to mo look more and more like Jesus. Do you see the picture? Okay, now here's, the, here's how that picture plays itself out. As we are yielding and as, as our beliefs and behaviors are conforming to Christ, here's what happens. We begin to clash with the world that actually crucified Christ. Okay, now, now do you see the link here? The more you conform in your belief and behavior to Christ, the more you're going to clash with the world that crucified him. See, th this is what he's saying in John 15. That th this pattern of, of you that you're living in now, that this, my pathway, humiliation first, honor second, is your pattern. And here's the reason that it's your pattern. It's because I'm actually dominating and saturating every area of your life to the point that you're being conformed in belief and behavior to me. And when you're conformed in belief and behavior to me, it doesn't make a world around you happy that crucified me. See, that same world that crucified Jesus starts to look at you and think, they look a lot like Jesus, so we'll go with him next. We'll, we'll go with her next. See, this is the play out for every one of our life. The more we're conformed to Jesus, the more we're going to meet resistance in the world. The more it's going to clash with that same world that crucified Jesus. Now, let me give you another illustration of this. This is Acts chapter 14, verse 22. The, the early church knew this same thing. That the more you conform to Jesus, the more likely you're going to meet resistance from the world and clash with the world about Jesus. In Acts 14, um, Paul has just been drugged out of a city and he's been stoned, and he has been left for dead. Okay, that, that's the context. 
The disciples come around, Peter or Paul, left for dead. And and the Bible says this, he got up, he, he rose up and he walked back in the city. What is that? He st- uh, these people were not novice stoners. They knew what they were doing. They're good at this stuff, right? And so when they stone a person and leave them for dead, they're typically dead. And, and they gather around him. He, he rises up and it doesn't say he limped into the city. He, he just walked, like, nothing happened. He walks out of there and he goes into the city and then he's encouraging um, this group of new believers. And listen to what he says to them. It says that strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, now listen to what he says to these brand new believers, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Do you believe that? So I'm concerned about this, that I think a lot of us have been sold a version of Christianity that doesn't encompass a cross. So, So it's Christianity, it's Jesus without tribulation. It's, it's, I get Jesus and life goes well. And, and if life doesn't go well, that means I'm not believing enough. I don't have enough faith. I don't know. I, something's malfunctioned in me. Through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom of God. So when you sign up, you push your chips in for Jesus. Here's what that means. You're signed up for many tribulations, for much trouble, for constant trials. That is a part of what it means to be a believer of Jesus. Actually, that's being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what it means for you. And listen, this is not just some thing that happens 2,000 years ago, this tribulation thing. This is modern day, like now happening. This is, this is present day tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. This sits over you, tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. I, I got a Newsweek magazine. I think it was uh, the February 13th issue that um, was titled this, The War on Christians. And so it was basically chronicling how in much of Africa, how almost, enti- almost all of the Middle East and almost all of Southeast Asia, that if you're a Christian, persecution has risen like to the nth degree. So it was chronicling all these stories of people who had been killed in each, each of those areas over the last year. And I, I don't know if you saw this just here recently, um, news has kind of hit on the U.S. side that there's an Iranian pastor that converted from Islam to, to uh, to Christianity. So he's a pastor now in Iran that um, he's been, essentially been accused and he is going to be executed for his faith, barring something crazy happening. Okay, so th- this is current day. It's through tribulation that you enter the kingdom of God. This is like now over your life, over my life. Now it could look a thousand different ways in this room. A thousand different ways. I, for, as one illustration of that, we've got a lady, a single lady in our home group that's about to get married here in a few months. And she has chosen to wait to have sex until she gets married. Her family can't believe that. I mean, it like raises to the level of arguments and like a disbelief in what are you doing? Why would you do that? See, and it may look like that. It could look like a, th- it's, it's going to be, it's going to carry itself into a million different ways or situations and look a million different ways. So it's going to look a certain way at your workplace, in your circle of friends, in your neighborhood, in your family. But, but here's the thing. Paul's saying it's through tribulation that you enter the kingdom of God. Okay, let, me, let me give you one, one more um, illustration of this. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's humiliation first, honor second. That's the pathway. Okay, look at Hebrews um, chapter 12. It'll be on the screen for you. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And your race is going to have this. Humiliation first, honor second. Why? Because this is what the race of Jesus looked like. Look at verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? First, it's cross. Second, it's crown. First, it's mistreatment. Second, it's triumph. This is the pathway of Jesus. And this is going to be your pathway. Um, Do you see the word despised its shame there in, in Hebrews chapter 12? 
despising its shame. That, that means to, in light of something else, this seems insignificant. That's what despising the shame means. That, that in light of what is to come, that, that all of this shame now seems, seems like something of little significance. So, so maybe you can think of it this way. As Jesus looked at his race, what awaited him at the finish line, triumph, made what he was enduring in the middle, mistreatment, seem as of no value to Jesus. Do you see that? So it's honor second, humiliation first. It's crown second, cross first. See, and this, is, this is a consistent teaching of the New Testament. If you want to think about how the New Testament deals with shame and honor, the cross and the crown, how that works itself out, it goes like this. You're going to choose one now, shame or honor, and you're going to wait for the other one later, shame or honor. But, but here's the catch. The one you wait for is the one you will experience for eternity. The one you wait for, shame or honor, is the one you will experience for eternity. So, so if, if you are the person that, that you have got to have the recognition, the, the, the reverence, if you've got to have the applause and the acceptance of people now, here's what that means. You get shame later and that shame lasts for eternity. But, but if you're the person that can embrace a measure of shame now as you follow Jesus, if you can embrace a measure of alienation now as you follow Jesus, if you can embrace a, a level of marginalization now as you follow Jesus, and, and you can wait for the honor, here's what that means. You get it for eternity. See, this is the teaching of the New Testament with shame and honor. You, you choose one now and you wait for the other, and the one you wait for is yours forever. So, so let's just ask the question. Is there a level of, of like this pathway of Jesus being embraced in you? Of cross now, crown later. Is that being embraced? See, if, if all that we've said here on Jesus' suffering and how that relates to you as a servant expecting suffering, if all that lands on you like, oh, I don't even get why this is relevant to my life. I don't even see how this kind of crosses the grid of my life. If that's you, then, then we're missing something, aren't we? I mean, something is wrong if we are not experiencing the tribulation that comes before entering the kingdom of God. And it's one of two things that have happened to us. One is either syncretism, that, that we look too much like culture. There's no contrast with culture, so there's no clash with culture. See, it's either that syncretism, that, that you lust for the same power, the same um, greed and money, the same sexual, like you're lusting for the same thing, so there's nothing different. There's no contrast. Why would there be a clash? So it's either syncretism on one hand or separatism on the other. That, that we have so retreated from culture, retreated from the world. Like we view sin as like a flu that if we, um, kind of this cancer, that if we get near it, we're going to catch it. So, so we've kind of quarantined ourselves behind our front walls. And, and we've separated ourselves from the world, so separate from the world that there is no culture to clash with. That there is no world to be marginalized by. See, it's either one of those two things. And if syncretism, you're looking just like the world, here's what you need to be recalibrated around this morning is the radical claims of Jesus for your life. That he actually demands that you deny yourself, take up your cross and actually follow him. That's a demand of the gospel on your life that you're doing that. And for those that have separated themselves from the world, we need to be recalibrated with the radical mission of Jesus. That, that Jesus actually goes into the world to save people out of it. And that we, as his ambassadors, are going into the world on his mission of rescue and redemption. So see, we need to be recalibrated to that. If you're not experiencing a level of cross now, then we need to be recalibrated with the radical claims or the radical mission of Jesus. But I think there's, I think there's some encouragement here for us that Peter's trying to give us. If your master suffered like this, I think you could expect to walk in his path. I think you could expect the cross before you get the crown. Okay, he's got more though. Secondly, Peter's reminding us, he, he's, he's calling us to remember that Jesus not only suffered, but that Jesus also saves. That, that Jesus actually saves. Look at verse 18. This is one of the clearest kind of statements of the gospel in the Bible. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, let me give you four phrases that I think give clarity to the gospel in this passage. First, Christ suffered for our sins. 
He suffered for your sin, for my sin. Like Peter is pointing us to Jesus who triumphed over our greatest enemy, who conquered our greatest enemy, sin. He's pointing us to that Jesus who died on the cross for your sin, in the place of your sin, to defeat your sin, to take care of all the consequences of your sin. He's pointing us to that Jesus who who died, who suffered for your sin. And this is why we can sing um, the, the hymn, It Is Well, and sing these lyrics. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, past, present, and future, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. See, this is the reason we can actually sing that. It's because Jesus has suffered for our sin. And look at the next phrase here, or kind of in that phrase, that Christ suffered once. Do you see that? Once. And that's a statement that's getting at the finality of the work of Jesus on the cross for you, the finality of it, and the sufficiency of it. That when Jesus said, it is finished, he actually meant that everything that needed to be accomplished for your salvation was done. Everything. So it's not Jesus's work on the cross for you, plus your good behavior. It's not Jesus's work on the cross for you, plus your good discipline, plus your purity, plus your Bible reading, plus your prayer, plus all of these other, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's his work is finally and fully done for you. That everything needed to accomplish your salvation was secured on the cross by Jesus. Everything. Like there's nothing you can add. And see, all of those things should flow from the cross, but none of them need to be added to it. And and then you've got another phrase in here. You've got the righteous for the unrighteous. Do you see that? The righteous for the unrighteous. It is this affirmation that Jesus substituted himself for us. So, So here's part of what that means. When it says righteous and unrighteous, Jesus is righteous. You're the unrighteous. That's the first thing you need to see in that phrase, that you are the, the kind of in the category of, of lacking righteousness. See, I, I think the hardest part about people getting saved is to realize that they're actually lost, that they're actually not righteous before God. That, that, this is in the words of Isaiah, that even your, listen to this, even your best deeds apart from Jesus, your best ones. We're not talking about the filth in you. We're talking about your best deeds before God apart from Jesus are like filthy rags. Do you know that? That's like the most graphic picture of grossness in the Bible. If you need a commentary on that, get a study Bible, look that up and just look at what it is. It's nasty. And he's saying your best deeds look like that before God, that you are not presentable before God on your own. Apart from Jesus, there is nothing presentable in you. Apart from Jesus, there is nothing righteous in you. But here's the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for you. He he died, substituted himself for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that when you stand before God, you actually look righteous to God. Maybe you could picture this in uh, with two whiteboards. Now think about these whiteboards. And this is going to show you where I think a lot of us um, carry around an inadequate view of the gospel. So these two whiteboards out here. And on this whiteboard, we're, we're characterizing all the sin and the idolatry and the rebellion in your life. Now, if you're like me, this board fills up really quickly. Okay, so we've got this board, all the sin, all the unrighteousness, all of that on this board. And see, a lot of us have this view of the gospel. What the gospel does, what Jesus' work on the cross does for us, is it's an eraser. So it comes to this board and it wipes clean everything on it. So that now we have a clean slate before God. That is a beautiful gospel reality, but it's not all of the gospel. Take another whiteboard over here, where we listed everything perfect and right about Jesus. So he's pure, he's wise, he's holy. He's perfect in every category you want to list up here. So we fill this board with all the attributes of Jesus. And now here's what the gospel does to your white cleared board over here. It takes all of these things that Jesus is and transfers those over to your board. So, so now when Jesus looks at you, it's not you with a clean slate. It's you with a perfect slate. Do you see the difference in that? This is the great news of the gospel that when God looks at you, he sees a a perfect reflection of Jesus over you and before you. This is what it means when it says the righteous for the unrighteous. 
that all of your sin was stacked onto Jesus and all of his perfection was stacked onto you. Okay, and then, then you've got one more phrase in here. He says, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. Do you know that the, the biggest problem in the universe, in the world, you know the biggest problem in the world is? It's not AIDS. The biggest problem in the world is not some moral or social issue. The biggest problem in the world is not nuclear weapons, a crazy regime. It's, it, th- those are not the biggest problems in the world. The biggest problem in the world, in the words of Isaiah 59 two, is that your sin has separated you from God. That is the biggest problem in the world. Sin is a separator. In the words of of, uh, Romans 5, that it has made you an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, that you are born dead in your sin and you are born as an object of God's wrath. That is the biggest problem in the universe. And you know what makes the gospel really, 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 really good news? Is that Jesus has made a way for reconciliation. That Jesus, the son of God, the perfect son of God, He became an enemy of God for you so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. That's the great news of the gospel. Now listen to how this relates to suffering. This is one of my favorite pastors. He he asked this question. Someone might ask, why would anyone become a Christian if what you could offer them was that things in this world would probably go worse for them? Why would anyone choose the pathway of Jesus, this cross before a crown? Why would anyone choose the cross? Why would anyone choose to become a Christian? He he goes on to answer. The answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. The biggest human needs are how to have our sins forgiven and overcome our separation from God and live forever with happiness in his presence instead of living forever in misery and hell. See, that's the great, that's, that is the good news of the gospel, that, that you've been reconciled to God if you're a Christian. See, and the reason that we would choose a cross now is because we actually get the crown later. But the reason it's worth a measure of disgrace and shame now is because we get honor for forever. That's, that's why. So if, if you're looking for a reason to become a Christian, that's it. Because you don't get hell and you get God forever. Forever you get God. And this is where it really intersects with suffering, I think, for all of us. This idea of reconciling us to God. Last night, or actually this was yesterday afternoon, it was time for Dr. Rodney Hobbs to come out in our, kind of the Hobbs Casa. Um, Hannah had fallen a a couple of days ago and she had scraped her pinky and her pinky is infected. It is nasty. Even today, it's still nasty. And so Dr. Hobbs comes out and what Dr. Hobbs really means is I've got a Band-Aid and I'm coming to do some damage with a Band-Aid. And so uh, I, we were on the couch and, uh, you know, she's protecting her hand, won't let me look at it, touch it, anything. And I've got a Band-Aid and I tell her, I'm about to put that Band-Aid on your pinky. And that's when the chaos ensued. And so this is thrashing. This is Hannah, four-year-old, thrashing, screaming, crying, kicking, everything she can do to keep me away from, from that pinky, she is doing it. It, it is a bad scene. And at one point, I, I looked at, over at her and I said, Hannah, do you want your pinky to fall off? And she's like, yes, I want it to fall off. That's exactly what I want. And, and then I looked at her again and I said, Hannah, um, do you trust your dad? Do you trust me? She looks at me again. No, I don't trust you. Are you crazy? You're trying to kill me. I, do I trust you? And, and isn't this so us in suffering? That, that God is a good dad and he's looking at something infected in us and he's saying, listen, I know this is going to hurt, but do you trust me to do good to you? That, that, that suffering is not, see, I think the temptation is in suffering is to start viewing God in such a way that it feels like he's abandoned you, that he's walked out on you, that this road surely could not be good for you, that God is no longer a good dad. And listen, what, what Jesus saves reminds us of is that God is actually a great father to you and that you are a son or daughter of God and that everything he would put you through in this life is ultimately for your good. Everything. That every band-aid he would wrap around you, as much as it hurts, it's good for you. Do you see that? That, that? See, when it says Jesus saves, it's saying that, listen, in the midst of your suffering, here's the most important thing you can know about God 
is he's a good dad. You've been reconciled to God. You're a son and you're a daughter of God. Peter's got more for us here. Number three, that we're to remember the story of Noah. Look at verse 19. This is where it gets a little bit crazy. Verse 19 says this, in which he, that's talking about Jesus, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. Okay, now when it comes to this verse, there's really five prevailing kind of dominant views as to what this verse means. And I'm going to give you one of those, the one I think is right and If I'm wrong, then we'll all get up tomorrow and we'll all love each other and the world will keep spinning. So it's, there's not a ton at stake here, but I think this is what Peter is saying. I think he's saying that the pre, like the pre-incarnate Jesus. So this is Jesus before he came to earth as a man strapped on human flesh. So that Jesus, okay, the pre-incarnate Jesus indwelt and empowered Noah. And through Noah, he preached the gospel to the unbelieving world around Noah. Okay, so I think that's what he's saying in here. That the pre-incarnate Jesus indwelt and empowered Noah and that through Noah, he preached the gospel to these unbelievers around him. Okay, now um, you can see something very similar to that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 10, where it says the spirit of Christ kind of worked through, preached through the Old Testament prophets. So I think the same thing is happening here with Noah. Pre-incarnate Jesus preaching through Noah. Okay, then you've got this whole idea of the spirits in prison. What is that? And let me just give you a couple of just quick thoughts on interpreting scripture. Here is the worst thing that you can do when you're interpreting scripture is to base massive, important, life-changing doctrines on unclear pieces of scripture. And by the way, this is what cults do. That they take, they take unclear things and they major on unclear things. Okay, so, so that's, a ba- that's a horrible habit to get in when you're interpreting the scriptures. Okay, what would be much better is to build massive, important, life-changing doctrines on the things that are absolutely clear in scripture. Okay, so when it comes to the spirits in prison, this is where um, some people go the purgatory route. This is where some people go that you can have a second chance of salvation route. This is where all of those routes get brought in. And all of those routes are wrong based on the clear things of scripture. Okay, so here's what I think is happening in the the spirits in prison. I think he is referring to the unbelievers in Noah's day who are now in hell, that died and are now in hell. I think that's who the spirits in prison are. People alive in Noah's day who did not believe, who have died and are now in hell forever. Okay, that's spirits in prison. Okay, so, but here, at the end of the day, that's not the most important question out of the text. Here's the most important question. Why in the world does Peter introduce Noah? We're talking about Jesus. He died for our sins, once for our sin, righteous for the unrighteous. Oh, by the way, here's Noah. Why does he bring in, oh, by the way, here's Noah. So let's go back and recount the story really quickly of Noah. And chances are, if you grew up in church, you got an emasculated and or sanitized view of the Noah story. See, Noah is first a story, a horrible story of God's justice and wrath and condemnation being dished out upon people. And on the other side, it's also a graphic picture of God's pursuit of people, his grace and mercy that saves people. But it's both of those. And see, most of the stories we learn about Noah, when when you just read it on the flannel board or you heard it talked about on the flannel board, was just the grace and mercy piece. But it's two stories here being told. So let's run through it. In Genesis 6, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, here's what we read. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's what we call total depravity, that people are bad. Sin is everywhere. Sin has affected everything. Okay, verse 5, it's a bad day. Total depravity has happened. Sin is everywhere. Then you've got verse six. And the Lord God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. One of the saddest statements in the scripture, that God is actually grieved that he created man. That's how bad things were. In verse seven, he goes on to say, it's so bad that I'm going to blot out. I'm gonna dish out wrath and it's just wrath. It's not like God is just capricious in this. It is just that he's giving this. He's about to dish out his just wrath and condemnation on the entire world. He's about to blot out everyone, he says. And then you get to verse 8 in Genesis 6. And it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. 
That's the Hebrew word for grace. So why is it that God is going to blot these people out, but yet he sets his affection on Noah? Is it because Noah was um, a good man because he was just more moral and better than everyone else around him? The answer is no. The, the reason he set his love and affection on Noah is the same reason he set his love and affection on Abraham. The same reason he fe- set his love and affection on an adultery committing and a murdering committing David, a persecuting Paul, a denying Peter. It's the same reason he did it on all those guys. It's called grace. See, it's not because Noah is righteous that God set his grace on him. That's not the point of, of, for crying out loud, three chapters later, Noah, it says he became a man of the soil. He grew a vineyard. He had grapes. He turned it into wine and he got so drunk that he passed out naked in his tent. See, it's not that he's this great guy. It's that God is a great savior and actually has grace on not good guys. See, that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. And so in verse eight, it says he found favor. He found grace in the eyes of God. And then verse nine, and and he was righteous in the eyes of God. But you see the order? If If you reverse and switch that order, you have swerved from the gospel. It's grace first, righteousness second. You don't earn grace. You don't earn grace by your righteousness, by your good deeds. God gives grace. And now in the eyes of God, you're actually righteous. So, so God finds, or Noah founds favor in the eyes of God. He's a righteous man. So now he's living. And then God comes to him and says, I want you to build an ark. I'm about to blot out everyone, kill everyone. And you build an ark. I'm going to save you and your family. And for 120 years, Noah starts building this ark or build this ark. 120 years, he built it. This is a massive project, 1.4 million cubic feet. It would be roughly the equivalent of 500 railroad cars. A huge thing. Now think about this. Noah finds himself in the middle of a desert. It has not rained yet. And God says, build an ark. Now, how well do you think that goes with the people around you? How does that go in the neighborhood? You start building an ark, 1.4 million cubic feet in your backyard. I, I, I would probably contend that this is where sarcasm kind of found its roots. This was the creation of sarcasm. I mean, it's just like easy pickings here, right? Noah, what are you doing? He's building an ark. The whole world thought he was a fool until the rain started pounding. And then now you've got one of the most graphic pictures of the wrath and justice, just wrath and just condemnation of God. Can you picture families crawling up on their roofs, trying not to be swept away? Can you picture daddies leading their family up the highest mountain in hopes that the, the storm won't come, the waters won't rise that high? Can you picture them having to swim for it? Some of them swimming over to the ark and beating on it, begging for their life, but it being too late. Can you picture being inside the ark and hearing the screams and the shrills of people outside? And then the eerie silence of everyone on the planet being dead, drowned in the fury of God's judgment. Can you picture that? See, this is the other side of the story of Noah. It's God set his affection and love on Noah, but he set his anger and wrath and condemnation justly on everyone else. Okay, so the question is, why does he throw this story in there? Why would this be an encouragement to people who are suffering? Let me run through five things really quickly. Five reasons that this story finds its way into what Peter's talking about. Number one, Noah's a reminder that God often uses a small and suffering minority. Eight people he saved through an ark. Eight people. That's eight against everyone else. It's a small suffering minority. And can I just tell you that if you find yourself in a small suffering minority, that being in a small suffering minority is not the worst thing for you. Being in the majority who's about to be drowned in God's judgment is the worst thing. That's the worst thing. Secondly, Noah's a reminder that we're all called to boldly preach the gospel to an unbelieving world, regardless of the cost. Regardless, in, in Second Peter, uh, I think it's chapter two, Noah is called a herald of righteousness. That, that God, through Noah, what was preaching the gospel to an unbelieving world. God, through Noah, was preaching to them. For 120 years, Noah preached to them. 
I, I love um, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, where uh, Paul says that if you're a Christian, you've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation and God has made you an ambassador, his representative. And then it says this, as though God were making his appeal to, a, to an unbelieving world, God was making his appeal to them through you. That through you, God makes that appeal. So so part of what Noah is reminding us that even in the midst of our suffering, that we are to be people who compassionately and passionately and boldly and with gentleness proclaim the gospel to people, give grace to people, actually um, tell people they need to turn from sin and embrace Jesus, that we're people that's doing that, that we're a people that actually has that pleading heart of God for people. That we are a church family that would look at the world and break like God does for it. So, so Noah's a reminder of that. Thirdly, Noah's a reminder that God pa- is patiently waiting for the repentance of unbelievers. That God is patiently waiting. For 120 years while Noah is building the ark, God is preaching through them, warning them. This is what's coming. Judgment is coming. A flood is coming. You need to turn from sin and you need to repent and run to Jesus and get in the ark. Nobody did. God patiently waiting. Do you know why Second um, Peter 3, 9 says the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God is patiently waiting and he's patiently working for some of you in the room? That the God is slow. He is patient in this. Working and waiting for the repentance of, of maybe you. For, for your, your, your salvation. Fourthly, Noah's a shocking reminder of the wrath of God that's to come. Isn't it a a vivid and graphic picture of of what will one day await everyone? See, when when you think flood, that is just a a sample. That's just a picture of what awaits the world when we die or Jesus returns. That that it's coming for all of us. And listen, we all want justice. Everyone in here does. This is why when a serial um, murderer is caught and brought to justice, that we all rejoice in that. We all feel like that's a good thing. A wrong was done, justice is had. We all have that justice streak in us. It was put there by God. And one day it's going to happen. One day God is going to set the world right. For 120 years, he preached. He gave altar calls. Judgment's coming. 120 years. Can can you imagine, can, can you imagine on the 119th year what people around Noah were thinking? Noah, it's been 119 years if you're building an ark. There hadn't been a drop of rain. Do you think this thing might be a hoax? Do you think you might have heard God wrongly on this, Noah? And in our world, very similar to that. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was going to come back. Don't you think that might be a hoax? Don't you think the Bible might have been written wrongly in that? And just like for Noah, it's written in stone. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to split the sky open. And Matthew 24, I think, is an interesting moment when um, Jesus is talking uh, to a group of people. And he says, he uses Noah as an illustration. And he says, I mean, he says, just like in the days of Noah, people were marrying, people were giving in marriage, people were eating, people were sleeping. They were doing all the normal things that people do. And the rain came. And then he looks back, takes a step back, and he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. People marrying, people giving in marriage, people eating, people drinking, and he's going to split the sky open. And in that moment, just like it was too late when they were, when they were begging and pleading and banging on the boat, it's going to be too late to believe. It's too late. And so, see, this ought to put some urgency in us that there's some of us that have been tiptoeing around this thing for a long time. And maybe this would be a good morning to say, my chips are in on this thing. Judgment is sure on this thing. Apart from Jesus, I'm going to meet that. So it's a reminder, this vivid picture of what's to come, this judgment to come. And lastly, Noah's a reminder that Christians have been saved from the wrath of God. Do you know that? This is the beauty of the story of Noah, is that it's really not about Noah, and the story of Noah is really not about an ark. Okay, now listen to this. The story of Noah is not about Noah, and the story of Noah is not about an ark. The story of Noah is about Jesus. I, I love how one pastor said it. It's not just about a family saved through a structure of wood. It's about a people being saved through Jesus on a piece of wood. 
See, that's what the story of Noah is about. That Jesus is the only sure ship that will save you from the coming wrath of God. He is the only sure ship that will save you from the condemnation that is surely coming. See, it's it's him alone. And can I just plead with you, some of you in the room, you are in the line of God's judgment. It is like a Mack truck that is coming down the road for your life. And apart from you turning from sin and turning to Jesus, that's what you're going to meet someday. But the beautiful reality of the gospel is you don't have to. God has made a way of reconciliation through Jesus. So when you trust in Jesus, when you give Jesus your life, he actually saves. He he is this ship that rescues you from the flood of God's wrath. Okay, there's two more here and then we're going to be done. I'm going to go quick. Number four, as encouragement and suffering, Peter is saying you need to remember your baptism. Look at verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, for, of Jesus Christ. So when you think baptism, I think there's, there's a couple of different things. I like how one pastor said, there's maybe three different things that you need to think of. It's a picture, it's a promise, and it's a plea. So uh, it's a picture. So depending on what biblical author that you're reading, the picture comes in one of two ways. If you're reading Paul, it might come like this. That when you are immersed, when you are sunk under the water, here's what it symbolizes. Here's the picture. That your old man is dead. That you have been buried. That old you has been crucified. And when you are raised up out of the water, this is the new you created by God. A radical reorientation of your heart. That's one picture. But, But in this passage, it says that which corresponds to this. So he is using Noah as an illustration of baptism. So so here would be another picture for Peter of baptism. When you are sunk down into the water of baptism, it is a picture of you in the middle of the fury of God's wrath. You are in the flood of God's anger, his fury, his judgment, his condemnation. But Jesus lifts you up out of that water and delivers you safely from that wrath and welcomes you into the family of God. So baptism pictures. This is what happens to a person that is saved. And and then there's this promise that God will actually do that through Jesus. That the promise is, is that that Jesus will actually save you. He he is the ship that will save you from the wrath that's to come. And he is the ship that will welcome you into the family of God as a son or a daughter of God. That's a promise for you. And then there's this plea. And this is really at the heart of baptism. When when he says that baptism saves you, he's not talking about a physical act of baptism. He's not talking about a moment when when you go under the water and come out. And he makes that clear. He says it's not as a removal of dirt. But how baptism saves you is this plea or this appeal for a good conscience. See, how baptism saves you is it's the expression of your heart that in faith is looking to God and saying this, I am trusting in the work of Jesus for me that you will count Jesus' perfection over me. That that I am wiped clean because of Jesus. His perfection is my perfection. My sin became his. See, when, when, when you get baptized, it's an expression of this faith that you're looking at God and saying, I know I need Jesus to save me. I want it. I'm here. I'm yours. See, baptism saves because your heart is looking at God and expressing, I am a sinner in need of a great Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. So will you save me, please? And the great news of the gospel is that when, when you have this plea from your heart and this appeal to God like that, he actually does it. He saves you from the wrath to come. See, I think baptism interlinks with suffering because when you're suffering, you need to remember this promise of baptism that God has saved you from the worst suffering. God saved you from the worst. So, so in comparison to that suffering, this is light and momentary. This is temporal. And lastly, number five, is remember that not only that Jesus suffered, not only that, that he saves, but lastly, that Jesus is sovereign. Look at verse 22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. If you are going to endure suffering well, okay, if, you, if that's you, if you're in the midst of suffering and you're going to endure it well, or if you're in the seat tomorrow and you're going to endure it well, here's the thing that has to be driven deep into your soul to the point that you actually believe this, that God is sovereign over all of your suffering. He is sovereign over all of it. 
In his providential care, there is not one molecule of the universe that is outside of his sovereignty. That there is not one um, demon. There is not one, there's not, not one ounce of suffering that you will go through is outside of his sovereignty. That Satan and all of his suffering kind of devised schemes, they're all under the providential care of God. That this is Job, who for Satan to, to, to make Job suffer, you remember that? He had to ask permission of God. So Job loses his house, he loses his family, he loses his business, he breaks out in a bunch of boils, and all of that is under the providential control of God. See, what, what sovereignty and suffering means is that God is actually in control of everything. He is sovereign over all things. And that same God who is sovereign over all things is a good dad to you. He's a father to you. And, and here's what that means. That all of Satan's kind of suffering devised schemes, if they ever touch you like Job, if they ever touch you, it will only be kind of this work of God to turn that touch into something that is your eternal good. See, that, that's what sovereignty means over suffering. That there is nothing that befalls a Christian that God will not work for your eternal good. Do you believe that? I mean, deep down in the depths of your soul, do you believe that? Let me conclude with this. Christian, as you endure the tribulations, the trouble, the trials that line the trail that leads toward the kingdom of God, remember, Jesus suffered and so will every saint. And remember that Jesus saves you from something far worse than your present suffering. And remember that Noah and the ark point to Jesus, the only ship that can save you from the water of God's wrath. And remember your baptism and the trustworthy promise of God to deliver all those who place their faith in Jesus. And remember, Jesus is sovereign over your suffering, turning all your suffering into sanctifying grace and your eternal good. Amen? Let's pray together. So before we sing a couple of more songs, I, I want to just give you a second to sit under that, to allow the Spirit to confirm and to, to imprint whatever needs to stay in your heart and to wipe away those things that don't. And for those of you who are in the room and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never held up your life and said, God, I'm yours and I, I, I'm trusting Jesus to be the thing that covers my sin. I'm trusting Jesus to save me. If that's never happened, then there is urgency. J just like the flood in Noah's day, that is coming again in a different form. That's coming. So there's urgency to that. Don't wait on that. Make this your day. Push your chips in. And for those that are suffering in the room, um, I, I want to do something that's a little bit different than how we typically end the service. But, but if, you're, if you walked in today and you would say that, you know what, um, I'm in a season of suffering right now. I, I'm in that season where suffering is difficult. Will you raise your hand for me? If that's you. Go ahead and raise it high. Raise that high. Keep, keep that up for just a second. I want everybody to, to take just a quick look up and look around. I want you to see some of those hands that are up right now. These are your brothers and sisters. This is a church family that we're a part of here, right? And so um, what I'd like to do is uh, pray over those with hands uh, that raise their hands. And if you want to maybe put your hand on them as we pray for them. Um, but, but I, I want to pray for those in, in our church family that right now, that they're in the middle of suffering. That they're in the middle of deep distress. So, so God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the room who find themselves in a very difficult situation right now. And God, our, God I pray that, um, that, that these words in 1 Peter might be a great encouragement. God, I pray that, that your spirit would remind them that Jesus suffered. And so this is, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. This, this is part of life with you. And that Jesus saved, that you have saved them from something far worse than their present suffering. And God, I pray that they would remember the story of Noah. That they would be a faithful proclaimer of the gospel in the midst of their suffering. That they would remember their baptism. That this promise that you have given to save them from the wrath to come and to deliver them into the family of God. 
And God, that they would know there would be a deep and abiding confidence in your sovereignty over suffering, that you are both sovereign God and faithful Father. And everything that befalls us is part of the plan to make us like Jesus and part of the, the plan to increase our eternal joy. And so God, will you help Will you help those men and women today who find themselves there? But by, by your spirit, will you undergird and sustain them? Will you give them great mercy today? God, will you stir up in them a hope for you? God, will you stir up in them a settled confidence in you? God, God will you keep them away from shaking the fist as if you have abandoned them? God, may they know that in the midst of their suffering that you are there. God, we pray that for our brothers and sisters in the room. It's in your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.